Hey, it's Neil. I am excited to share beer stories. Hosted by my good friends Misha Smith and Ilinx Violet from Pastor Street Brewing Company. And produced by me at 7 Million Bike Podcasts. So check out Beer Stories here on a Vietnam podcast. It's going to be a special pod swap and we're going to do more of these over the coming months. There will be new episodes every week. This is for beer enthusiasts, not beer snobs. So if you love beer, you'll love this podcast. The link is in the show notes. Go and follow that if you need it and enjoy the podcast. Cheers. Welcome to another episode of Beer Stories. This is a podcast about beers. Our producer is Neil Mackay of 7 Million Bikes Podcast. Our theme music was composed and performed by Lewis Wright. My name is Misha Smith. My co-host, as always, Alex Violet. How's it going, Alex? Oh, it's going well. And our guest today is the founder and CEO of Heart of Darkness Craft Brewery, based here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, John Pemberton. Hey, guys. Thanks for asking me to join. Sierra Nevada, great gateway beer, I think, and also Dogfish Head 60-Minute IPA, which stayed my two solid go-to beers for my whole time in the States, and was the start of a 16-kilo journey that I added on during my time in the US. <laughs> you measure? I mean, you don't go back once you discover craft, right? After discovering craft beer, moved to China, and there's no craft beer again, so there I am in the barren wasteland of Qingdao, Heineken, Tiger, and beers that really aren't worth getting fat for. A good mate of mine, he kept saying, we should brew, we should brew, we should brew. I very quickly got absolutely obsessed, quit my job, and did nothing but brew for six months. Turned out I was pretty good at it. We don't have to deal with too many drunks, you know, and I think the difference is, you know, you, you drink the cheaper macro beers to get drunk. Whereas craft beer, you're drinking it for the experience. It is another favorite of mine, but Galaxy's so hit and miss. I mean, one, one year it'll be outstanding, the next year it'll taste like sacks. And uh, yeah. Tastes like what, sir? <laughs> yeah, I realized after I said that. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> <laughs> it does, it tastes like muslin sacks. No, I'm with you on that. I'd love to see more sour beers in the mm. market. And I think that they will take off eventually. I think it's just a case of time. Who wants to drink bad beer? I mean, really, it's just not worth it. There's enough beer which will give you a minging hangover and just taste mundane. The whole point of craft beer is to, for me, is to challenge the way you look at beer and, and the way people think about beer. And, and I think it's beholden upon us to just do the best job that we possibly can and put out the best flavors that we can. Life's too short to drink bad beer. Yeah, only drink beer that's worth getting fat for. Our guest today is John Pemberton. Hey, guys, thanks for asking me to join. Thanks for coming on. We start each episode with a recurring segment that we like to call the hangover check. Today is a Sunday morning. Alex, why don't you start us off? How hungover were you today on a scale of 1 to 10? Uh, 2.1. <laughs> no rookie stars. Love it. No round numbers. <laughs> John, how'd you, how are you feeling this morning? Probably weighing in at about a 7. Oh, wow. Uh, it was Matthew's birthday yesterday at Saigon Croft. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Bit, got a bit messy. I was about a 3 out of 10. I knew we had a long day of potting, so I wanted to be professional and <laughs> take it easy last night. <laughs> Went home and watched a movie. All right. John, growing up, all of us were, were old enough men that craft beer wasn't really part of the, the lexicon when we were kids. Do you remember 
like the first time you heard about this thing called craft beer or like, like do you have a memorable first craft beer experience that you want to share? I think it's when I moved to America. So um, being an Englishman, obviously we love our beer in England mm-hmm. and um, I moved to the States and I was just like, oh my God, I'm moving to the land of Bud, Bud Light, Coors, Coors Light, Michelob, Michelob Light, what the hell am I going to do? Yeah. And uh, my ex-wife threw this big party for me when I arrived and I'm sitting there crying into my Budweiser, quite literally. And this guy, John, who later became a very dear friend of mine, I'm telling him like, what am I going to do? There's no good beer. And he says, no, 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 come with me. And we walk around the corners to this massive beer barn. So this is my first experience with a beer barn. And he goes in and then we fill up this huge bag of beer and go back to my apartment. And he starts walking me through his craft beer journey, basically. I think that night, the, the takeaway for me was uh, Sierra Nevada, great gateway beer, I think. And also Dogfish Head 60 Minute IPA, which stayed my two solid go-to beers for my whole time in the States. And was the start of a 16 kilo journey that I added on. During my time in the US. <laughs> you measure. I mean, you don't go back once you discover craft, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And and you were instantly drawn to the hoppy beers. Yes. Yes, very much so. Yeah. 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 Didn't mess around, went straight to the IPAs. And then, I guess, I mean, that's what's really inspired us, me, Heart of Darkness, is the hoppy beers. So, John, what were you doing when you had the idea to come to Vietnam and uh, start a craft brewery? Well, I was already in Vietnam, so I came here with IKEA. So I was the country manager for IKEA on the sourcing procurement site, but I was an avid home brewer. So I'd lived in China for eight years before coming here. And after discovering craft beer, moved to China and there's no craft beer again. So there I am in a barren wasteland of Qingdao, Heineken, Tiger, and beers that really aren't worth getting fat for. So I decided, uh, actually a good mate of mine, he kept saying, we should brew, we should brew, we should brew. And at that time I was traveling all the time. And then one night, it's like 11 o'clock at night, and there's a bang on my door. And this is, I mean, we're talking, what, 10 years ago? So it was in the age of cell phones. I mean, who the hell just rocks up someone's door at 11 o'clock at night and knocks on the door? So I'm like a bit worried. I answer the door and there's my mate Steve standing there with this bottle of beer in his hand and this big grin on his face. And he's so excited. He's like, you've got to try this. You've got to try this. You've got to try this. He'd literally bottled it and chilled it that day and just rushed over the minute it was cold enough to drink. And it was a, a red ale, a absolutely stunning red ale. And I said to him, like, Look, all right, if you can make beer that good on your stovetop, I'm in. Um, so I said, I'll buy the system because he wasn't working at the time. I said, I'll buy the system. You teach me how to do that. So um, we put together a 80 liter, 80 liter kit. It was really fun. I mean, we had to hand build everything because you couldn't buy it pre-made in China. So we hand built the whole thing. It was actually a pretty good piece of kit. And we started brewing. So we, we went straight to keg, didn't mess around with bottles. So we were brewing like making four kegs basically each time. I very quickly got absolutely obsessed quit my job and did nothing but brew for six months. I replaced Steve with pumps. Sorry, Steve, just because I couldn't have him there all the time. So and I wanted to brew all the time. So I just replaced him with pumps and, and got cracking. It was a lot of fun. Turned out I was pretty good at it. And then IKEA headhunted me to come to Vietnam. So I did that. But then halfway through my time in Vietnam, I met my partners. Well, it was harder. So yeah, I was, I was really excited when you guys opened up and rushed down there with my, my biking buddy and neighbor and Tony and uh, bumped into Andrew there. Actually, he was he was out shopping with his wife. I think he'd escaped, was getting a cold beer, and was excited to see what you guys are up to as well. Andrew's my partner, yeah, one of the founding partners of Heart of Darkness. We had flights of beers there, and then we went back to my place, and I had some of. The, I think I had our Kurtz on and Pitless Folly at the time, or what would become Kurtz and Pitless Folly. And Steve-O took a slug on one of them, and was like, oh mate, we got to open a brewery, and that's kind of how the whole thing started. Snowballed after that. It's a it's an awesome story, and um, so many people come from home brewing to um, to just you know kind of falling in love with that process and being like, okay, it's it's time to make this the uh, the full time job. Um, when you got started home brewing in China, like um, what was the scene like there? Like, was it difficult to find ingredients, or was there like a community of brewers, or was this like 
you had to kind of strike out on your own and like discover everything for yourself. There was hardly any scene at all. I think there was two other guys that were homebrewing as well. And another couple of guys up in Dongguan, which was quite far away. So that was literally it. I remember the first homebrew competition actually in Hong Kong. And I think there was like six or seven people turned up for it. And this you know, like 10 years ago. And now look at the scene there. Now it's huge. Um, getting raw materials, was, that was a challenge. That was a big challenge. I used to air freight the hops into Hong Kong and my wife would hand carry them across the border up to China because we couldn't get them into China. And then for malt, I had to buy 25 kilo sacks from Wireman up in Beijing and have it shipped down. So yeah, it was like malt everywhere. Way too much malt for my needs, but it was the only way to get it. It's just now dawning on me that you're a procurement guy. Yes. So this was probably like, you know, whereas like, you know, I was like, how do you get ingredients? This was like your training. This is second nature. Yeah. It was the same when I moved here, actually. It was really hard when I got here. I mean... That was before you guys had opened as well, right? So um, I moved here in 2013, and I tracked down Titan. And I remember sitting down with Vun all those years ago, explaining craft beer to her and explaining what homebrewing was and explaining that it's going to happen. It's going to come. Sooner or later, you should be ready for it, and convincing her to bring in specialty malts, which she very kindly did. We had to do some importing ourselves in the uh, the early days. <laughs> A little bit of it. And then, you know, we, we are working with the same people. But that is, for me, one of the, the best parts about having so many breweries in Vietnam now. Yeah. Is that everything's available. We now have, like, suppliers just saying, hey, we're going to bring this in. Is anybody interested? Yeah. And it's not, hey, it, working with, like, Titan, for example, that was, I think, the first company that we worked with yeah. other than importing our own stuff. And it would be like, okay, plan out what beers you want to brew how much of the ingredients you're going to need, what kind, nine months ahead of time. Yep. And so it was like really, really difficult to be creative just because of the logistical limitations. And and that, I think, has largely just kind of faded away in Vietnam. It's it, You can yeast, hops, malts, very good variety. Yeah, we've come a long way, hell of a long way. It's so much easier now. I mean, I remember when we first started, it was like even getting glasses and stuff done. Everybody's sort of like, where, where, where do you get your glasses? Where do you get your bottles? Where do you get this? Where do you get that? Everybody sharing the information. Yeah, trying to explain uh, what a growler is <laughs> and, and where to find these jugs. So speaking of years ago, importing our own, Dave and I were in Hong Kong, I think, for a festival, and uh, there were some hops that he wanted that we couldn't get in Vietnam. So we met up with uh, Percy, packed up our bags, taking them across the board. I'm like, Dave, are we, are we hop smugglers? <laughs> he said, Misha, we're Lupulin pirates. <laughs> speaking of importing hops, what's your favorite country to import hops from? Oh, interesting question. We're very US-centric, so I lean more towards the US hops, although I, we do do a lot of New Zealand hops, which are a lot of fun, uh, just because they're so different. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a classic Citra Mosaic kind of guy, personally. So yeah, US hops all the way. Yeah, they're uh, workhorses worldwide. It's kind of cool to see that there's something to these types of hops when they work in all of these different countries simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, through wildly different, you know, um, flavor palettes like that, yeah. that these ones just seem to work for pale ales and IPAs. Yeah. I love the fruity floats, the fruity notes and the stuff. Galaxy is another favorite of mine, but Galaxy is so hit and miss. I mean, one, one year it'll be outstanding. The next year it'll taste like sax. And uh, yeah. Tastes like once, right? Yeah. I realized after I said that. <laughs> I've never heard that phrase before. <laughs> it does. It tastes like muslin sax sometimes. Oh, like a, like a burlap sack. Yeah. That's okay. the one. That's the word I'm <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm scared of Galaxy sometimes because it's so good and it works. Yeah. And then you put it in your recipes and then, boom, it's 40 bucks a pound or you yeah. just can't find it. And yeah. you're like, how do you replace this hop that's so distinct? You just I feel can't. like I've had single hop Galaxy beers that were like super funky. and Yeah. 
Well, that's why we pulled, so Sacred Fire is a single hop galaxy, okay. Golden Ale, when we first started. Mm-hmm. And it's lovely. That was one of my homebrewing beers. I just love that beer. But yeah, you just couldn't trust the reliability of a galaxy. So we pulled it because it got annoying. So, John, like anybody who's been to your tap room or seen your branding online know that Heart of Darkness has a very distinct look and, yeah. and feel. Can you talk to us a little bit about the thinking behind <laughs> just from the name of the brewery yeah. to the, the kind of branding guidelines that you guys must have come up with? What message were you trying to send? Um, so we wanted something that was dark and edgy that people wouldn't forget. So, and we wanted something that would link us back to Saigon loosely. So we were toying with Apocalypse now, but that was a little bit obvious. And also, you know, there's a rather renowned bar. So we were, I was actually in a car in the middle of China somewhere on a call brainstorming it. And I said, well, why don't we go with Heart of Darkness? I mean, that's the story behind Apocalypse Now. And you've got the Apocalypse Now link, and you're Saigon, shit, still only in Saigon as the opening lines. So it kind of had, it did what we wanted. It had that loose link back to Saigon. It was dark and edgy for sure. So we then decided that we spin the whole brand off the book. It's my favorite book. Apocalypse Now is my favorite movie. And so so all the beer names come from the book. And the actual branding was, we were sitting on a wet Sunday afternoon around in my apartment, brainstorming it, drinking beers. And I was trying to, we wanted to take the brand back to sort of that age. So the book was written in 1897, I think, something like that. So we wanted to link it back to that era. So we wanted the branding to have that old, antiquated feel to it. And I remembered as a kid, my my mom's family, fairly wealthy, and they had this big playroom for the kids up in the attic. And all the cousins used to go out there. It's dusty, creepy, ghoulish kind of place. And I remember these piles of books with from like the 1930s with the woodblock print on the front. And so I kicked that out as an idea. And then we Googled Heart of Darkness. And literally on the first page, there was a woodblock print copy of the Heart of Darkness book. So I was like, that's it. So uh, that's how we ended up with that that look and feel. That's why we use the faded colors and everything as well. So we wanted, so all the names of the beers come from the book and then all the actual labels. The art comes from the passage that the names picked from. So... It has to be two name, two words together in the book. So when you see us do the IPA, you know we've run out of names. So two words together and then, yeah. So then the label's inspired by that passage. Brad Guidelines, it's actually taken on a life of its own. It guides itself. It's quite, it's, it's quite spooky how it's become just this entity. It's like working with another member of the team. And my head designer, Hal, I think it's safe to say is the absolute keeper of the brand. I go to him for advice and I'll check with him before I do anything just to make sure that we're on point. But the, so the, the attitude was there from the beginning yeah. and then the name and the look and everything flowed from. from yeah. That. So basically that's the, my common retort is, is it in the book? If it's in the book, we can do it. If it's not in the book, we're not doing it. So I'm just thinking about that. The book, there, there's not, there's not a sequel coming out, right? So there's, <laughs> there's like a set amount of material in this book, but you can read it or interpret it different ways. Or I guess yeah. like, you know, it, if you've got a beer that's like more aggressive, are you looking yeah. for like a more aggressive section of the book or? We actually pull out a bunch of names at any given time. So we'll pull out like 300 names and we'll have a list. But um, the brewers do have fun with it because they often they'll get to name, they'll name the development beers themselves. If it's a core beer, then I'll be involved in picking that name. Unless the brewers have done a great job on the development name and we'll keep it. And they do. They, they use it to poke fun at us or to just sort of make statements. It's quite fun to see what they come up with and they do try and tie it into the beer style so yeah, yeah well. that sometimes that little bit of stress can really spark the creativity we um we, we've always incorporated non-traditional ingredients from vietnam yeah. into our beers and you know there's uh, there's so much out there to work with but sometimes like that would 
you know, inspire like thinking about a flavor that I hadn't before. Yeah. Trying to like incorporate this ingredient into yeah. the beer. And then and then vice versa. Sometimes you're running out, you're like, I need to go to the market and just see what's out there. <laughs> running out of ideas for this. But it's good to have that uh, that consistency that you stick with. And sometimes the stresses of that can breed the the creativity. Yeah. Yeah. So John, knowing craft brewers as I do, I'm sure you've had some interesting suggestions. Have there, have there been any names for beers that you've just had to reject? No, because nobody gets our naming convention and hardly anyone's read the book. So, yeah. <laughs> and it's only 110 pages. But I don't think we'll run out of names anytime soon because it's super, super dense. It's a really, like, amazingly well-written book. Uh, also, and- breaking news, The Ghost of Joseph Conrad is releasing a sequel. You know, the best bit was we, so this whole brand is so carefully curated and put together, right? We actually opened our tap room on Joseph Conrad's birthday mm. and we didn't realize until a year oh, later. That's funny. <laughs> so December 3rd is Conrad's birthday and that's when we have our anniversary party <laughs> every year now. If they wrote it in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. Exactly. That's, that's funny. <laughs> I was, I was just thinking back to what you were saying about like you were sitting around trying this beer and like, we're going to open a brewery, right? Mm. But the tap room was there from day one, right? Yeah, I think I tried to do both at the same time. I'll never do that again. Um, so uh, I was doing construction work on the brewery and the bar at the same time. I got the brewery across the line first. So that opened in, I think we put up our first beers out at the end of October, but I didn't get the tap room open until December. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we were never really, we knew we needed like a showroom, I guess. So we were originally thinking have some taps in the office and that was our original location, which turned into our first tap room. But it was very uh, a conscious decision, I guess, that, we knew we needed some sort of experience to explain what our brand was yeah. about, what our beers were about, why they were special, and and just what are your thoughts on that, you know, operating tap rooms as well as distributing the beer? I'm with you on that. I mean, that's the same reason that we opened the tap room. I had this epiphany one night and sort of woke up in the middle of the night. Well, we've got to open a tap room. We've got to have some sort of marketing face for the world. Also, I think it's sort of, I mean, we're all early movers in the market, right? So I think it was... Part of my thinking, and that's why we have 20 taps, was um, I think it's our duty to bring the world of beer to Vietnam and to expose the Vietnamese to all the different types of styles and flavors and everything that are out there. That's why we do so many different brews. So I think it is important. I think they are very important marketing fronts. And it's also where the customer can come and sort of touch and feel and interact with the brand. I always say my floor team are one of the most, most important teams because that's where the customer actually meets us. And having them well-trained in beer and understanding how to talk about beer and explain beer and introduce beer to the Vietnamese, I think super is one of the most important jobs we do, I think. How do I feel about running bars versus distribution? The older we get, the bigger we get, the much more challenging it becomes. Yeah, I've just actually been planning the 2023 budget. Oh my God, it's just a nightmare now. We're literally four different companies, right? So it's become a quite a challenging beast. Yeah, the um, the, the tappers though, I you know, credit to you guys. It's an awesome tap room. Thank you. And what we were going for when we opened ours, I guess we had like just one rule and it was make sure you could pick it up, take it over to Colorado, drop it down. And it would be a spot worth going to in that place in terms of the beer quality and the staff knowledge and like the, the atmosphere and things like that. And it seems like that a lot of the breweries that were opening up around the same time as you all took that kind of approach where it was like, we're not going to cut any corners. We are going to have this super high quality, best in class, like the branding is there, the beers are there, obviously, the staff training. And I think it's just really, really cool to see in Vietnam because not everywhere that you go is like the kind of like early class of brewers have it together like that from yeah. day one. And I think customers see that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was uh, that was another part of our thinking was like, 
I mean, we want it to be an experience. We're, we're bringing the whole craft beer experience to Vietnam for the Vietnamese to experience what it's actually like. So, yeah, I mean, we did exactly the same thing. I wanted to pick up, it's like, picked up a craft tap room out of San Diego and dropped it in the middle of Saigon, basically. Um, and I always feel really proud when customers leave reviews like, wow, I could be in San Diego right now, or I could be in Portland. I think that's, that's the high praise. It means we've done it right. I think all of us in this room agree that uh, the quality of the beer is the the alpha yeah. and the omega, the alpha and the omega of any craft brewery. Yeah. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Because like sometimes we get bogged down in like you know off flavor sensory sessions, and it's like I like on flavors. Like can we yes. talk about good beers. <laughs> why do Why do you think it's so important to lead with quality? Well, I think everything. I mean, my entire career has always been about quality. Everything I've done has to be top in my. Yeah, my previous jobs. Oh, you're also asking the customer to pay a lot of money, right? If you're if you're in a country where normally a beer is going to cost you thirty thousand dong, and now you're going to charge them one hundred and fifteen thousand dong for it, best you give them a really cool experience and a high quality experience. Coupled with the fact, who wants to drink bad beer? I mean, really, it's just not worth it. There's enough beer which will give you a minging hangover and just taste mundane. The whole point of craft beer is to, for me, is to challenge the way you look at beer and the way people think about beer. And I think it's beholden upon us to just do the best job that we possibly can and put out the best flavors that we can. I mean, we're um, we're very much a late edition hot brewery, so we don't have places to hide. You can't screw that up. It has lots of delicate flavors. Yeah. Life's too short to drink bad beer. Yeah. Only drink beer that's worth getting fat for. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and when you're doing beers like that, one of the things that I really enjoy about brewing, brewing them in Vietnam specifically, where it's not you know, insanely popular yet is that a lot of people are trying these for the first time yeah. and, and it almost feels like a weight. Like if somebody's yeah. going to try an IPA for the first time and it's not good, man, yeah. that's the, uh, you, you just let yourself down. You're just like, yeah. this person might not even get into craft beer. If the first craft beer they try exactly. isn't yeah. a good quality, then you're almost like shooting yourself in the foot before the race even starts. And I know that in Saigon, like especially there's just such a, a high density of quality craft brewers. And I think it's, uh, from what I say, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, but it seems exponential in that, it, you know, like you start out, you're doing things the right way. More brewers start up. They're yeah. also doing things the right way, focusing on quality. And there's probably somebody in your tap room right now making the decision <laughs> to start a brewery and that being the standard. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it keeps going. I've definitely seen an improvement over the years as well. I mean, when we first started, there was a few dodgy beers out there. But now it's definitely, everyone's up in their game. It's great to see. And I, I'm dying to see some of the smaller breweries sort of rise up and sort of come up and challenge, challenge you know, the bigger breweries today. I mean, I mean, none of us are that big right now, but I mean. Um, oh, relatively big. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's the the type of challenge that uh, that is productive. I think this has come yeah. up a few times on the the podcast already, but it's healthy competition. It's competing for making better quality beer. Yeah. It's not competing to, you know, pay somebody to not serve somebody else's beer or yeah. a race to the bottom in terms of like the cost and the price and all of that. It's, uh, man, that beer was really good. I got to make sure ours is really good. Yeah. And it kind of just like helps the whole scene push up and it's it's cool to see that happening this early in it yeah so that was like heart of darkness east west belgo you guys all opened like around the same time yeah and i remember at that time like people friends of mine or other people in the industry like oh are you are you worried are you guys worried about i was like <laughs> no i like good beer like <laughs> I'm, I'm more worried about somebody releasing beers commercially that aren't good yeah and calling them craft like that's that's the only thing that keeps me up at night yeah. as a as someone in the craft beer industry is I'm not worried about more good beers. <laughs> yeah. I love more good beers. It's just more <laughs> options to drink. But yeah, it's people releasing 
calling Hogarden crafty. <laughs> well, that. There's, there's that, yeah. <laughs> Still makes my head hurt. Or just like a smaller craft brewery that doesn't have their shit together yet, and like they're releasing beers that just, like you said, there's some dodgy beers out there, and there were yeah. more years ago than there are now. Yeah, thank God, we're moving in the right direction. But yeah, that's more good beers. I think we can all agree is a absolutely it's a positive yeah. development. Yeah. Yeah, and the the community here for me is seen very very supportive, especially where you're not really able to have like a formalized trade organization, yeah. right? But it seems like everybody kind of hangs out at the same spots and helps each other out. Yeah. So so when somebody has a beer and they're just getting started and it's not the best, it seems like somebody lets them know. Yeah, and then they're like, oh, okay, and yeah. and by the way, here's how you might be able to fix it. And it's like that constructive feedback from yeah. within the group. I think we've all been very good at that, actually. It's, you know, every time somebody gives me a beer to try, I'm like, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I'm going to tell you my absolute honest opinion. Are you ready for that? Because a lot of people aren't, and a lot of people can't take that. But I think it's our duty to do that. We shouldn't tell someone it's a good beer if it's a bad beer. And if it's got an infection, tell them what the infection is and how to fix it. And hopefully next time around, it'll be a better beer. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of that, um, about smaller breweries and like hoping they get bigger and better, Like, I don't know if you guys have been to the Hop Horizons new tap room yet. Sadly, I've not made it out there yet. Okay, it looks beautiful though. Yeah, yeah, it's a great space, and I didn't know that they were making a lager until I went there, and it's okay. really good beer. And like doing a craft lager mm. correctly, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we can all agree is <laughs> not the easiest thing to do. And these guys really knocked it out of the park. So that's yeah, I love you know, what they do. I think that yeah. uh, that for me, I find them inspirational because that's really the first proper Vietnamese, all Vietnamese outfit, I believe that are doing great beers. Someone can fact check us on that, but I, I think you're right. Yeah. Well, I guess Hebrew Master could probably argue they came first, but I, I've, Fook's passion for what he does 100%. is like absolutely inspiring for me. We need more people like him around and Kai. Yeah, it's great seeing people start it for the right reasons. Yeah. Quality. Yeah. And he's always been so passionate, even when he was brilliant, you know? Mm. It was, uh, just his passion for the beer and, and this tap room was always contagious for me yeah no brilliant was a great spot yeah we were all sad to see it go yeah but yeah when when i found out the owner of this craft beer bar is like he's gonna make his own beers and i'm like oh yeah oh that's great <laughs> can't wait to try them yeah yeah i'm thinking about the the quality um it's also for me like the the quality of the experience yes yes and sometimes people are really getting into you know the craft beer because of the flavor yeah. And then I've seen people at our tap rooms that get into craft beer because they like the community yeah, the that culture. exists around that tap room. And then that is how they get introduced to to drinking craft beer. Yeah. Do you guys see that as well? Or Very much so. I mean, it's, um, I mean, we, we don't have to deal with too many drunks, you know? And I think the difference is, you know, you, you drink the cheaper macro beers to get drunk. Whereas craft beer, you're drinking it for the experience because it's, you know, everyone's different and you're looking for different notes and different flavors. And for us, it's just about coming together. It's about, you know, we have no TVs in our tap room. I think you're the same way, right? Which means that people actually interact with each other. And that was that was super important for me when we put the bar together. I wanted it to be somewhere where friends would gather. And you enjoy that entire experience. And then you link the beer and the brand back to those happy, good times. For me, craft beer is a very emotive connection to the, to the customer. I mean, like, I think back now, Sierra Nevada and Dogfish Head. Those beers mean so much to me because they've been with me in good times, you know up hanging out up on the lake in upstate New York with my mates and stuff like that and all these memories that are tied to these beers. So uh, I think it's part of what we have to do is create that experience and create that connection. Yeah, um, and not many fights. No, I think right? we've had, I think two, two that I can remember. Yeah, yeah very yeah. odd. And then, um, and then when you, when I go and walk up and meet someone, right, I'm not sure if there's a theme of conversations that you can pinpoint that happens at your tap rooms, but I'll walk up and say, hey to somebody or, just hear what a table is talking about. 
and they're talking to each other about which beer they like the most yeah. or why this one has this yeah. aroma. It's like having that variety of interesting tasting beers is like a conversation or a conversation starter yeah. Uh, yeah. for a lot of people. It, and that's, that's one thing that I've seen in our tap rooms. Is that the same at your guys' place? Or I know you guys have a lot of like live music yeah. and like cool vibe, you know, it's a yeah. very distinct vibe at your tap yeah. room. Oh, I love that vibe. It's like, I know I'm biased because it's my tap room, but honestly, our tap room on a Friday night is the best feeling in the world because everyone's just having such a good time and the vibe's so good. Everybody's just enjoying the beers, enjoying the company, enjoying the music this, and watching the team just serve that room so smoothly as if, you know, it's just awesome feeling. Absolutely. Your pale ale, a mighty fine beer. Third best pale ale in, in Asia. Oh, dear. It's funny. Like, the Dream Alone wins gold every year. Yeah. And we win bronze every year, I think, in the pale ale. And the silver keeps rotating. And so we're, we're constantly the first <laughs> and the third best, you and us. And the second place keeps going oh. to someone different. Oh, well, Dream Alone is hands down my favorite beer. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I, that surprises me. Oh, I, yeah. I would have I guessed you'd pick, like, a one of your massively hopped IPAs. No, no. I, I still love Kurtz. That's actually the last of my homebrew beers, which is still in the range. But it's, uh, I mean, we end up drinking so much that the big beers just don't work for me. It's very funny. just get slaughtered. <laughs> <laughs> so Dream Alone at 5.7 is my session beer. Yeah. <laughs> Although I have to say, I was drinking our beer yesterday, going back to the to the craft lagers. I, I very rarely drink it. And I had it yesterday because it got served to me by mistake uh, at another tap room. Oh, life. sorry, the the beer. Beer, yeah. Right. Sorry, I, you said, <laughs> I was drinking our beer the other day. I'm like, which one, John? That's like, why we called it beer right, beer yeah, in the well, tap room. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, craft lagers actually, it's, it's a big category sneaking up. I think everyone I know that's making them now, and most of the, te- most of the breweries I know doing them, it's become the bestseller. It's interesting. We seem to have come full cycle on the hoppy front. So speaking of categories, I always bring this up for Alex's benefit. Do you have any thoughts about low and no alcohol beers? What's the point? <laughs> I, so I was, I was always with you. Alex was talking about non-alcohol beers for yeah. a long time, a non-alcohol craft beer. And I was like, I don't think I can sell that. Like, I don't think there's a big enough market for it. But he got me to come over to the the light side, I guess, with the our newest beer. It's two point two percent. Yeah, I, I never thought I'd have a low alcohol beer that I'd like. Is that your Chang? I, beer? I want that. Yeah, the Chang Moi, yeah. the salted. I want to try that. Yeah, I want to try that. I'm not sure that Vietnam's going to adopt them. I mean, they're selling like crazy in Hong Kong. You know, we brew for Guaylo, so I, yeah, and, and they um, they get one made in they get it made in Europe and they ship it over to Hong Kong. Sells their pale ale, their alcohol free pale ale sells more than their regular pale ale. That's nuts. Yeah, but crazy. I'm saying like. There is going to be a market for it in Vietnam because we've already seen with our 2.2% that yeah. it's it's now our second most popular beer oh, wow. at okay. all of our tap rooms. And it even outsold Jasmine a few weeks. Wow. Uh, yeah. So it, like we were surprised by how well it's taken up. But so to bring it back to HOD on the back of that, are, has there has there been any beers you released that you were shocked by just how popular they were right away? Or conversely, something that you like a beer that you really love that you're really proud of that just didn't really perform that well? Well, Dream was a runaway success from day one. Um, sure, but you must have known that that was like... I had a sneaky feeling. Right. Um, Everyone who tried that beer early on was like, yeah, yeah, this is going <laughs> to move a few units. It actually was a really slow beginner, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It took a while to pick up. And people wanted to pull it from the range. And I was like, nope, nope, nope. Hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. And it finally, <laughs> finally took off. Loose Rivet, that was another one. But I mean, that again, that was a no-brainer. I mean, that was... yeah. That was the that was our second shot at New England. I really liked the first one, Vast Country, but our but our brewer back then, Pete, he was like, "Nah, not good enough. Not doing that again. Give me a shot at it. I'm going to come out with another one." And then he came out with a uh, loose rivet, which yeah. was fantastic. And when he, 
do miss pete love that guy, yeah. yeah what else the mistress i was always sad that that didn't do better because that was, was a double yeah. yeah and i think that's why it didn't do better because it was such a high abv yeah and pricey I, yeah. I was thinking back to that though you were just saying you know like the pale ale because yeah. if you know you're drinking kurtz all the time then you're in trouble right yeah. i've seen a lot of people at our tap rooms that love like jasmine ipa because of that yeah they're just like i only had three and i feel <laughs> awesome this is mm. great like you don't have to have you know like this this high volume they really enjoyed like yeah. the uh, it's not as like a, a point of value like yeah. oh you get one and it's a little bit more expensive but the flavor is awesome and it's like got two beers inside there this is perfect <laughs> but one of my favorite memories of this whole craft beer experience in vietnam we're at a Saigon Outcast craft beer festival. I was behind the bar pouring beers, and this Vietnamese guy is like, you know, middle aged, comes up and he's, "This is your beer?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm the sales guy. You know, I work here." He's like, "I love your beer." <laughs> Thanks, man. That's great. He's like, "Yeah, when I drink Heineken, I don't get drunk until two thirty. I go home. My wife is very angry. When I drink Jasmine IPA, I get home at ten thirty. The same drunk. My wife's very happy." It's <laughs> like that's the best advert for craft beer. For, for a healthy marriage. But no, I, I see that. So like you've been, you know, you're, you're a beer connoisseur. You, you have a brewery, you know, and, and you get into it and you're drinking beer all the time. You go for like some of the lower alcohol options, but then the people getting into beer, they're just like, you do it right, right? You don't taste the alcohol. Yeah. You yeah. do a, a nice, clean fermentation and, yeah. and it's not, you, the amount of flavor is immediately obvious, but the alcohol might not be. Yeah. 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 Our guys are very good at that. The high ABVs, or you can't taste it. Dangerous, dangerous beers. Hmm. That strawberry daiquiri did. It was an eight point five percent sour. It was absolutely gorgeous. Can it we terrified me? Can we talk about sours? Of course, we can. Because I, sours. I love sour beers. Yeah. I think a lot of us at Pastor Street do. I think obviously a lot of craft brewers are very passionate about sour beers. Haven't really taken off in Vietnam yet, no, in my sadly. estimation. Yeah. Do you think? Like, do you have any theories on why that is, or like what we need to do to get sour beers out there more? Misha's obviously passionate about sours. <laughs> I love. <laughs> No, I'm with you on that. I'd love to see more sour beers in the market. Mm. And I think that they will take off eventually. I think it's just a case of time and more people getting into craft and more people exploring craft more. We used to do them quite regularly before COVID for the tap room mainly, just small batches. But during COVID, I put a stop to it because I found them just sitting on the taps forever. It's like, obviously, the locals don't want this. Uh, we can only sell it when we got the tourists in town. Uh, so we'll we'll ramp it back up again. I think now we got tourists back again, so it's probably time to start ramping that up again. But we're about to do. So we've just done. You know, we did the teeling barrel aged series, the shadow and the. So now we've done the two turns on the casks. We'll be turning those cu- casks over to some fun experimental sours. So you'll see a lot of sours coming out of HOD, HOD uh, over the coming year. That's also fermented sours. Yeah, I want to do wild ferments, but can't break the brewery. Yeah, it's it's scary, uh, yeah. you know. Um, but you know, in theory, I mean. The stuff that you use to kill your ale yeast so it's not in your lager tank. It yeah. does the same job to anything that could be in those barrels. But yeah, if you make a mistake with me. the ale versus lager, maybe the flavor isn't going to be too crazy. Yeah. You know, it'll be a little bit different, but you get some lager yeast into your ale fermentation. Yeah. Who's going to pick that up? But you get some Brett in there and <laughs> you're going to taste it. Yeah, it could be an expensive mistake. So what I've seen with with us doing sours is that it takes a while for somebody to like, I don't know if it's the the naming. Or the the intensity of the flavor, but I feel like there's sour food in Vietnam. But once people discover it, it turns into like a go-to for them. Yeah. So we were looking at like, do you rotate this beer on or off? And, you know, like if you're just basing it on the sales, right? Yeah. And then, but if you look at like how many people was that their favorite? 
And we see a lot of people like with a sour. So we're trying to, you know, just to kind of like carry a torch, I guess, it's like always yeah. keep a sour beer on, yeah. like, like give people the opportunity. Do you have any beers like that, that you guys are doing where you're just passionate about this style and you're like, Hey, we want to get it out there. And it's like, it doesn't make sense for some different reasons, but you want to give people the chance to try it. We, uh, yeah, I mean, our Blinding Sunshine range, that's meant to be every quarter that we put one of those out. That was, that was the plan before COVID anyway, to try and push that. So basically similar, it would be a similar level of sourness in each one. And we just change up the flavors, different fruits and stuff like that. So keep the theme going. We've still, we're still doing that. And I think we will get back to a place where we're doing those on a regular basis again. We know that they're not going to be the best sellers, but, but first of all, it's not our job just to make beer to sell it. Right. I mean, it's we're there to educate and to share with the experience as well. So I do see it as an important thing to do. So we'll get back to that. Yeah. Having the, the variety. Obviously, I mean, yeah. when we're making beer, we want to make beer that people want to drink. Yeah. And uh, one of the beers that I love drinking is a brown ale. Ah. And it's like one of my, not only like one of my favorites to brew, but I just really enjoy drinking brown ales. But it seems like wherever, wherever we try it. Yeah. It just never catches on. And I'm just like, yeah. but some people really like it. You need to <laughs> like have you. a brown ale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like that's one with the sour beers. I'm I'm still keeping that alive, trying to give it a chance. Yeah. But the brown ale, it just. Have you tried Steersman's? The uh, dark horse. I do. I've actually really talked nice. to them about this before. I'm putting it on the tap room. Yeah, it's delicious. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I love it. Like, yeah. And I love that there's a brown ale out there that you can, that there's an option for that. Yeah. And it's the same with reds too, right? Reds don't sell. I love reds but they just don't sell. Don't understand that bit. Because it's the, the, the intensity, the flavor, and those lovely dark berry flavors you get from the malts. But no, just don't sell. That's why you put in 20 taps. Yeah. Well, that's our birth story as well. It's that beer that, that Steve brought around that night that got me into brewing. And it was the first beer that I ever brewed was a red. So we, we'll put that out every now and then is our Savage Heart Indian Red. I just wanted to push back a little bit on something Alex said. We make beers that, what did you say? We make beers that we think people want to drink? Yeah, I, I've you made to, you I made you made ask. you made a durian wheat beer, and people <laughs> keep asking for it. Misha. <laughs> no, they God don't. Damn. Yes, no, they do not. You don't have to like the flavor. You can like the novelty. <laughs> I don't have many rules for my brewers, but that's one hard fast rule: is no durian beers ever come out of the heart of darkness ever. <laughs> but every, fair play for you for doing it. <laughs> every once in a while, it comes up. I'm like, oh, we should do that. I just throw my body in front of it every time. <laughs> no, no. No, but that is 90% of it is you're trying to listen to what people are saying, like, hey, what flavors do they like? Like, what could be an interesting way to create a flavor in a beer that they might not have had that might be the next new thing? And that's where, you know, like we, we brew beer for people to drink, not for the brewers, because it's your personal favorite style, right? right? But then sometimes there is something like this sour beer, yeah. this, you know, like brown ale, red yeah. ale. Cool to see that. What are your thoughts on the amount of taps? It sounds like 20 taps has come up a few times, right? <laughs> uh, I have my own thoughts on it, but I'd like to hear like uh, your thoughts on the variety of beer and, and why that's important um, or not important. Yeah, it's an interesting one because it, it definitely com complicates things for sure. Coming up, filling 20 taps all the time is not an easy task and it puts a lot of pressure on the brewery and it means I have to have more brewers. So it's a little bit more of an expensive way of doing things. But go back to, back to what I was saying earlier, it's like, I do think it's beholden upon us to be doing this and to have all these different styles so that the customer can experience that. So that's why we have 20 taps, because I really just wanted to bring the full experience. And also the other part of it is, I think it's like, I don't control my brewers. They do whatever they want to do. 
So all of our R&D brewing, that's all them. They call the shots. I mean, every now and then I'll have ideas and things that I want and I'll ask for and I'll brief out a rough recipe for. But they can literally walk in in the morning and go, hey, I want to brew this today. And then we've got this massive hop library up in the brewery as well. So they can literally come in and do whatever they want. So I wanted it to be a playground for them because the more we brew, the more we understand, the better we get. Also, how boring, I mean, you probably know, it must be really boring to be a brewer and brew the same four beers all the time with no variation. So I think it's important for their creativity. And I think we're a better brewery for it because there's this constant experimentation going on and no controls on them. Yeah, it definitely is a part of the creative process, keeping keeping that passion there. And yeah. then one thing that, that I've noticed is that traditionally, you know, unwaddled places in the world have different ways that that bars and restaurants operate. But in Vietnam, it's standard for the brewery to provide the draft equipment. You yeah. Know? And then you start having your tap room with with more taps, yeah. right? And then all of a sudden you're seeing that, that customers appreciate having that variety of yeah. like draft beer. And I've noticed that from, from the early days where it was like, okay, we're going to expand. How do we buy all these kegerators or something like that? <laughs> to now it's like places saying, hey, we, we built our own yeah. giant cooler with 30 taps and they don't want to put on like four taps of one beer. They want 30 different beers. And it seems like a really cool thing to like spread the the expectation of yeah. customers that you can try different things. But then, as you said, it's also dangerous <laughs> because you're always making something new, which inherently has has those struggles. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's more, it's just more the workload, right? I mean, it's it takes a lot of time to produce those beers. I and mean, we do roughly 100 new beers a year. So that's that's a lot of work. Absolutely. So 100, that's two per week. Yeah. A lot of work. But fun. And it's fun for me as well, because I walk in the tap room, I've got no idea what's going to be on tap. So it's exciting for me as well. So I wish I should talk to Neil about this. We should have got him down here too. Yeah, yeah. So Neil, not so, our producer, Neil. No. Neil is Neil Woods, one of the talented brewers from Heart of Darkness. Brewer, yeah. We can, um, we can talk to our producer, Neil, anytime we want. So I'm just, is there a theme? To the new beers, like, or is everything have to be brand new, or do you like bring back some of the ones that you've done before, like some crowd favorites? Yeah, so we we tend to do that. So we do throwback Thursdays so every Thursday. Those are crowd favorites and team favorites. We may be a little bit biased on that on that range. It's the stuff that we all like for the most part, and the stuff that's sold best. We it's it's interesting because over the years now we do have a few of these seasonals that we've done, or just nanos that we do for the tap room that people just rave about and just want. So yeah, we we put them out periodically. So at, at Heart of Darkness, I had the, the next beers that you're going to offer year round or the next beers that are seasonals yeah, or the beers that are seasonals and then, and then aren't there anymore. Is that how they all start? Mm-hmm. This one small batch and then it's like everybody requests it and then it's there yes. on the Thursday and then it's like, hey, we'll do it as a seasonal. Yeah. So, yeah. For the most part, it's like that. Sometimes we just, I mean, like the river was very much create and then uh, dream sensation which will be our new core beer which we'll release next year it's actually on tap at the moment gorgeous that was also sort of a conscious decision to make it but the rest just yeah they grow organically for the most part yeah but we've just been sort of playing around with the range a little bit more for the international distribution stuff that our distributors are requesting from us which you know we've then developed for them and then like oh actually that's a really nice beer so we might as well just do it everywhere so yeah a bit of both but mainly it's organic yeah, for us, it's very much like the the tap rooms are like like you said, marketing. Yeah, it, you know, it's providing a, yeah. a really cool craft beer experience, and then also like laboratory, figuring yeah. out what flavors resonate, which ones don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I know you guys do a lot of contract brewing for different countries, different breweries. 
But on on the opposite side of that contract brewing spectrum, I know you guys are brewing at uh, Behemoth in yes. New Zealand with yeah. Andrew. Shout out to Andrew. And I just, I think I know the answer, but for our listeners, like what, why would you choose to do contract brewing in a country rather than the more traditional export method of brewing it at home and then shipping it? It's an, it's extremely expensive right now to ship, right? So mm. when we started doing that, all the freight rates were, went completely out of whack. So there was no, we were actually going to start exporting down some of the seasonals and also beer on just masses of beer. But yeah, it all became prohibitively expensive. And so Andrew's like, I want to brew it. So of course, I mean, we're huge, huge fans of Behemoth and Andrew Child. Mm. So if Andrew wants to make our beer, I'm actually honored that he does it. So For sure. yeah, it's fantastic. And it's, it's gone well. It's working out nicely. It's just really nice to be in New Zealand as yeah. well. It's amazing how prolific they are as a brewery. Like every yeah. time I go to Singapore or any other country, it's just shelves full of Behemoth beers, all yeah. different. Like, And every time there's like, oh, I've never even heard of that one. I've never seen that before. Yeah. And obviously like living here in Vietnam, we don't get it. But even then, like going overseas and seeing... 20 different beers in cans on shelves from yeah. one brewery behemoth. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. I thought we were crazy. He's way crazier <laughs> yeah, than <yeah>. us. <laughs> and for me, like just logistically, like for you and for Andrew, it's just like the artwork, like to do all yeah. those different, to do all yeah. those different. I'm just like, I know what a headache it is for us to design a new label and like get it all, get it all, you know, yeah. fine tuned. And then, yeah. So to see all these new seasonals and cans all the time for you guys, I'm just like, thank God I don't have to do <laughs> <laughs> But obviously, it's great for your customers. I love working with him, though. He's, he's an absolute joy to work with because he just, I mean, we, we made a beer called These Go to Eleven. And the reason we called it These Go to Eleven, because that's what it's like working with Andrew Childs. It's like, <laughs> if you can take it to 10, he's like, nah, screw it. We're going to go to 11. Like, can Jan do something? Nah, more hops. Loads more hops than that. <laughs> it's just crazy. He sends yeah. these recipes and I'm just like, are you are you sure about that, Andrew? But but always in balance. Yes. Like, I've never had yeah. one of his beers that I was like, oh, that's too much. Like, yeah. no matter how hoppy they were, how big they were, I've never been like, come on, man. No, it's all, <laughs> they're always good. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's a very, very talented man. Yeah. Man. So I've never had a um, one of your beers brewed in New Zealand. I'm, I'm assuming that you've had that. Plenty of times. Do you have a favorite? <laughs> well, they're, they're all the beers that we make here anyway. So actually, Some Sorcerer, that's one of the ones that, that's one of the crowd favorites that we have to bring back regularly. I know almost, almost killed Loose Rivet and replaced it with Some Sorcerer just to piss everyone off. But because it's 50-50, you either love Some Sorcerer or you love Loose Rivet. It's really weird. But anyway, Andrew decided that he wanted to lead, lead with Some Sorcerer. So that's actually in market down in uh, New Zealand. And then uh, the other thing is like, every, nobody believes in pale ales. Everybody thinks that IPAs will outsell Dream Alone. Every every time we go into a new market, everyone's like, oh, I'm not so interested in the pale ale. Can you call it an IPA? Nope. It's a pale ale. It's staying a pale ale. And they take it because it's our best seller and they take it because it's a tasty beer, but nobody believes it's going to sell. And then it becomes the biggest seller in the market for them and beats the IPAs. But, uh, but Andrew took that same approach, but not because of IPAs versus pale ales, but because everything in New Zealand is hazy. So mm. he hazed up Dream Alone. That's what Dream Sensation is. And then we made it here and was like, ooh. That's really, really good. So, so it's going to call here too. So that's actually New Zealand innovation coming back to Vietnam. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So they're they're all different beers. No, no, no. So they so they do Kurtz, loose, loose rivet. They've done Dream Sensation and some sort. So those four, and then they've also done Futile Purpose as well. Uh, Pilsner. Yeah, yeah. The cucumber Pilsner. Yeah. So I, I was asking, like, can you taste the difference? I've only tried them once. So Ollie, okay, yeah. Ollie went back to New Zealand and he brought back a four pack so we could try each one of them. We nailed it. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I was super happy with it. Even Kurt's bang on. So so they're basically the same beers that we make here, which is why I love working with Andrew Charles. You can trust that he'll do it right. Oh, yeah. Working with um, 
amazing brewers, you know, the beer is never going to be bad. Yeah, exactly. At, at the, at the least it's like, it might be different, but they're yeah. both different in good ways. And, um, you know, we see that with some of the stuff where you're using fresh fruit, you have to constantly adjust and, and, yeah. and as brewers, we're all doing it with hops. Yeah. So year to year. So how do you guys do that? You have hoppy styles yeah. that, that are core brands and, and there's different hop harvest every year. Yeah. Right. So have you guys adjusted the, the recipes over time or is it always making it taste like the last batch? Or is it saying, hey, people are enjoying hoppier beers. Maybe over time, Dream Alone gets a little bit hoppier <laughs> as, as it goes on. Neil does a fantastic job of keeping everything in line and adjusting it all. I mean, that guy's scary smart. So I don't see much flavor drift in our beers. Dream Alone can drift a little bit, but that's more about, because it's a single hop, it's mosaic. And mosaic can drift around a little bit too. So that impacts it sometimes. But for the most part, it's bang on point. And then when Neil took over the brewery, it was really funny. It was Dwayne never let me mess around with loose rivet. And I, there was something I really wanted to take the hot burn out of loose rivet. And I, so I called Neil that one day after Dwayne had left. I'm like, all right, now Dwayne's gone. Can we? Can we? Can you do me a favor? Can we sort something out for me with loose rivet? He's like, yeah. What do you want done? I said, I really want you to just like make it a little bit creamier, a little bit smoother. Take out that hot bend, the hot burn at the back, and just fruit it up, make it really, really juicy. He went, cool, cool, cool. Love that idea. I'm like, great. When, when do you think you can put that batch down? He went, oh, you can try it next week. I did it last week. So, <laughs> and then, and then a few weeks later, I sat in the tap room. I was sitting with customers and discussing some beer we were going to make. And I was trying dream. I was drinking dream alone and I just ordered, the, drank it. Bloody hell. And Neil was there. I'm like, what did you do? And he just had this cheeky little grin on his face. Oh, I might have taken some of the bittering hops out and moved them to the back and I might have made it a bit fruitier, a bit juicier. It's absolutely beautiful. So. Yeah, he tweaks things a bit, but I think for the most part, he does a really good job of just adjusting for the hops and uh, making sure that it will taste the same. Yeah, I've thought about that with like things like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, and yeah. I was just like back in the US and then drinking, and I'm like, I, I swear it tastes like like more hop aroma coming out yeah. of this thing, but I'm like not even really sure. It's been like, you know, a couple yeah. of years since you had the last one. And, uh, and yeah, I think styles definitely evolve over time, and the hops, obviously, they're, they're different each yeah. year. And always interesting to hear how people kind of like say that, what is the style? What is this beer? Is yeah. it, it going to be the same 10 years from now? And, yeah. and usually we're just trying to, to keep it tasting like the last batch. So uh, every guest, we do a little fact or fiction. 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 Okay. I'm going to make some statements either about you or your business or just beer in general. John, fact or fiction, you have a preference for hiring tall white men to work at Heart of Darkness. <laughs> I guess that's a fact. <laughs> it's quite funny walking into a room with Chris and when well, I have Chris, Ben, and, uh, and uh, Rob. Yeah. And I feel short. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'm 6'2". <laughs> Rob's a beast. <laughs> he is a big boy. It's not by design, though. It just happened. <laughs> sure. John, fact or fiction, Kurtz's Insane IPA is the best IPA in Vietnam. Well, I mean, that's a question of taste, isn't it? <laughs> and I'm very biased. True. <laughs> John, fact or fiction, you once described your partner, Andrew Stevens, as a marketing genius. Did I? I think you did. <laughs> well, he has done a great job, to be fair. So you're not going to stand by that? Marketing genius? Marketing genius. I don't I don't think that's fiction. I didn't say that, did I? <laughs> I think He's a, excellent at what he does. <laughs> you were doing a presentation at, I forget which Cebu, but it was, it was about marketing. Ah, okay. And I'm pretty sure you slipped that your partner, Andrew, okay. is, is a bit of a marketing genius. Okay. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Okay. I mean, bit. he's done a good job. <laughs> okay. Give him credit. 
Yeah, to be truly meant it. <laughs> to be fair, my hangover factor was a ten that day. <laughs> I remember you mentioned that. Yeah. Oh, that was brutal. <laughs> John, fact or fiction? Innovation and adaptation is essential for any craft brewery. Fact. Absolutely. We can't stand still. We've got to keep innovating. You've got to keep moving it forward. I mean, that's the whole spirit of craft at the end of the day, right? 100%. And that's what I love about the American craft beer scene. It's just always push push the envelope, try something new, try something different. No fear. Just go for it. John, fact or fiction, there is a Heart of Darkness taproom in Cambodia. Sort of fact, I guess. <laughs> is it a taproom? <laughs> it's, it's not ours, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's an interesting place, right? That's that's another one we'll let people Google. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> From my understanding, it's now some sort of weird transvestite bar, right? It's gone through this evolution. That's one that we'll let people go. <laughs> it's an interesting place. I've not been to it yet. I do want to go, though. Okay, nice. So my last one is a, is a guest fact or fiction. This was sent to me from someone else. John, fact or fiction, Ashley Roper is a better pool player than you are. Oh, it's fiction. Pure fiction. I wipe the floor with him. Not what I <laughs> oh, I've got witnesses, mate. <laughs> He's still bitter about that night, isn't he? <laughs> he needs to come down and play pool again. <laughs> if he's still got his passport, that is. <laughs> okay, I wasn't there, I don't know. Well, that's been Beer Stories. Our producer is Neil Mackay of 7 Million Bikes Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Lewis Wright. Thanks, Alex, as always. Thanks, Misha, John. Great conversation, as always. Thank you, guys. John, thanks for coming on. Cheers. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers. Cheers.